0: So, over the last month or so, we've been in the book of Genesis as we start in this new beginning of, uh, of God's work here in the church, of going back to the very beginning. And, and so, as you, if you're going to want a Bible, if you need a Bible, just slip up a hand, and we got some guys walking around, and they will gently toss a Bible at you so that you can follow along with us. And so, we, uh, and like I said, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. But we we felt like it was appropriate to go back to the beginning. This question of who are we, like what story do we find ourselves in? And, And this story that defines us, this origin story. And really asking this question, okay, God, what is the life that you created us to live? And then immediately following that question is, okay, so what happened? Because obviously we live in this place that doesn't line up with the picture of your created intent of Genesis 1 and 2. we looked at how God created us in his image, that he is the center of the story. It is about him. And he created mankind to reflect his goodness, his glory, to take his goodness out to the ends of the earth. To hear from his voice, to walk with him in intimacy and strength. He gave them identity, but also he gave them relationship. First and foremost, relationship with himself, but then also relationship with one another. As Genesis 2 says, that Adam and Eve found themselves naked but unashamed. In other words, fully known and fully loved. Nothing hidden. Our hearts still crave that kind of love. But we know... More often than we find ourselves in vulnerable, fully unconditional love spaces, we actually find ourselves in hiding, with walls up, defensiveness, even sometimes in a posture of of manipulation or control or fear. But God created us to live with that sense of fully known, fully loved relationship with him, with one another. But also, not just in relationship, not just with a sense of identity, but also with a purpose, a calling. He gave mankind responsibility to co-rule, to reign with him, that dominion. This, this This created order, the kingdom of God there in the Garden of Eden was meant to be further expanded. The potential of God's kingdom taken out. To the ends of the earth by man and woman co-reigning together with god identity relationship responsibility in the sense that we were created to live in a healthy rhythm with god in tune with god's heart seasons and days weeks sabbath rest and fruitful labor but again, we look at our lives, and we see yes, this longing for all of these things, to have a sense of who we are, identity, to be an intimate relationship, to have a clear calling and a purpose, responsibility, true authority, to live in healthy rhythms. But if you're like me, and it's hard to take an honest look at our lives, across all of those things we see, we fall pretty far short, don't we? Genesis 3, where we started last week, gives the great turn in the Bible from what God intended to what mankind decided. Because we see not just was there identity and relationship, responsibility and rhythms, but also God gave mankind, male and female, Adam and Eve, a choice and a voice. Voice the ability to connect, the ability to have authority, to rule. But a choice because God said he set them in this garden. And, and we'll set up the, our garden again this week because we're going to pick up where we left off. In the garden, two named trees, all kinds of trees, good for food and pleasing to the eye. But two trees that were named the tree of life from which they could eat freely. And we said with the tree of life, God was making a statement. I love you. I want you to experience life and life to the fullest. But then there's this other tree that gets named. Actually, the only restriction in the entire Bible, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, if you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. Why? Because with this tree came a choice. And it wasn't the statement, I love you, that reigned out over all of creation. Instead, it was a question. Will you trust me? The Bible also calls the tree of knowledge a tree of wisdom. It wasn't that God's desire was to withhold wisdom from us. The question wasn't about having wisdom. It was about where we were going to go to get wisdom. In other words, who's going to decide for you how to make life work? Who's going to decide for you what is the best way to live, to parent, to find love, and to be in relationship, to have a sense of significance and purpose? In other words, those things God designed in Genesis 1 and 2, Identity, relationship, responsibility, rhythm. Who is going to train, teach, guide, empower us to live in a healthy sense of those four things? All God will say, is, just keep coming to me. Keep coming to me and I'll give you everything your heart desires. I will set you free. Or, go and eat for yourself. We see Adam and Eve that in that incredible goodness of the garden up to this point there's been three voices the voice of god and the voice of man sorry two voices the voice of god the voice of man adam and eve being two so i guess that's where i got three anyway it's early math's hard (laughs) but into the story genesis chapter three a new voice gets introduced the serpent shows up begins to question the character and the nature of God did God really say you're not going to die and questioning God's word and questioning God's character the first temptation becomes the echo of the temptations we still face every day again here's the picture God creating man and woman to live in harmony with him that we turn to him his voice and we make the choice, we will trust you, we will look to you, your perfect timing, your perfect ways. And we will be sent out from this place of intimacy and vulnerability, fully known, fully loved, empowered with responsibility. And we will take this relationship and this intimacy out and explore your creation. But unfortunately, with this choice with Adam and Eve having eaten from this tree, we know what happens. They turn their back on the creator who made them, who knows them, who loves them. The one who holds life, who declares, I love you. And the moment they turn their back on the creator of life, what do they get? Death. Death. I mean, it's not that death was a punishment. Death was the natural consequence. It's what happens when we reject the one that holds life in his hands, that created life with his words. So we'll pick up here in Genesis 3, verse verse 8. Having eaten from this tree, having listened to the serpent, and then disobeyed God, it says that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. In other words, they realized they were vulnerable, exposed. They sewed fig leaves together, trying to cover their shame. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So into their brokenness, God shows up. Into their shame. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. So we see already into this perfect world of intimacy and vulnerability of 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 power and potential is introduced fear and hiding shame and guilt blame and accusation not only do they turn their backs on god but they turn against one another it's her fault she did this so god said to the woman what is this you've done and the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me, and, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, you, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain and toil you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, I know a familiar story but there's a whole lot there and and so today I just want to simply look at the consequences and yet God's invitation. For the serpent God says more cursed are you than any other creature. The rest of the Bible will give us a clearer picture of who this serpent is. That it's not just any random animal that finds itself talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. But instead, Revelation 12 makes it clear that that serpent is Satan, the deceiver. That Satan himself is one of the angelic hosts. That reigned with God before mankind was created. That rebelled against God. Declaring God's throne for himself. Similar to what he would tempt man to do. To set themselves up as God. In place of God. Not needing God. And the serpent. Who's also known as Lucifer. Satan. The deceiver. The father of lies. The accuser of the brethren. Who now has declared war. On God, and therefore, everything created in the image of God shows up to destroy and to distort, as John 10 to steal and kill and destroy the goodness and the grace of the God who made man and woman. So, cursed are you, and God places Satan into a, sub, a, a servant, a, a subservient position. You will be on your belly. You are claiming a throne for yourself. In your pride, you are demanding to be worshipped, but instead you will find yourself on your face in the dust. And for the woman, notice a couple of things that are important in here. One is this. that man and woman are not cursed. Sometimes the, the easiest thought is you know, we, that mankind rebelled against God, and so God cursed them. God never curses mankind. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does God curse his precious creation. God does not curse his children. In fact, what we see more often is when people try to curse God's people, God rises up against them and forces blessings out of their mouth. God will not curse what he blesses. And remember, one of the first things he blessed... Man and woman. It's not man and woman that get cursed by God. Instead, it's the serpent and the ground that gets cursed by God. Two is this. That the consequences that Adam and Eve faced from their decision to walk away from the God who knows them, made them, and loves them were not punishments. They were natural consequences from their decisions. How? How? Remember Genesis 1, God sets man and woman in this amazing relationship with him and he, and he gives them a mandate. He, he gives them a role to play. He blesses them and tells them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, subdue or, or to, to see my, the reign of God extend over the earth. But when they get cut off from the creator of life and they are now, it's now up to them on their own to figure out how to make life work, death enters the scene. And when death enters the scene, the, the consequence for a woman is that she is to bear children, that it should be fruitful and multiply, right? But now, with this thing that was supposed to be a blessing with God, where life was all they knew, now the possibility of death enters into this most precious act. In other words, that baby may not live. And it's up to you to make sure that that baby survives. Death is now tainted. It is now, In fact, the word there is, is to have toil in childbirth. But then it says in pain, and that's a different word than the, the first pain. It is toil and childbearing, which is the same word actually as the word toil of the ground for Adam later. But in pain you shall bring forth children. And that word for pain there is actually the word sorrow or grief. In grief and in sorrow you will bring forth children. And we know, maybe from your own experience, or maybe from a friend's experience, or or maybe just from looking around the world, the grief and the pain that can come from trying to bring children into this world. Even the ones that live, the grief and the fear and the pain that comes from the possibility of death. Every time my 16-year-old, last night was homecoming, drives away from the house on her own, the fear and the possibility that something could happen. So they're not cursed, they're not punishments, but they're consequences, again, for Adam. It's that the ground is cursed, it is now up to you to make life work. And with the possibility of death, in other words, this thing that was supposed to be fun, to tend to the garden, to discover the potential, the fruitful labor, now is toil. Why? Because if you can't get those crops to grow, you die. You're now cut off from the God that was going to make sure that you're cared for, provided for, that you could look to and trust, that would guide you in your decisions, that would teach you how to make sure that, that apple trees have a great crop of fruit, and that apple trees taste a whole lot better than crab apple trees, and important other life decisions like that. All the time with God, discovering it, learning it, but now it is up to you because you've turned your back on God and you've turned against one another And if it doesn't rain, if you use the wrong fertilizer, if you put it in the bad soil, you die. Now, most of us, I know, are not farmers. And most of us are able to go have babies in modern hospitals with all kinds of really smart doctors and monitors but we all know from our experience, the angst and the insecurity of feeling like it's up to me to figure out how to do this life. It's sitting across from the kitchen table from your spouse and not knowing the words to say or what to do, realizing that you made a mistake or you are misunderstood and it just feels like you're getting farther and farther apart and not closer and closer together. Like I said, the angst of watching a child drive away, but it's not just the angst of watching a child drive away, but but those seasons and times when it feels like emotionally they're getting farther and farther away and you don't know what to do. To show up at work and your boss says, can I see you in my office for a few minutes and not knowing, is is this a good thing or did I mess up? Did he find out about that little mistake that I made and try to cover up three months ago? We know the fear The shame, the guilt, the insecurities, the vulnerability of trying to figure out this life on our own. That's the consequences of the garden. And then you multiply two people trying to navigate life on their own terms, apart from God. Over billions of people, over thousands and thousands of years, and what do you get? A world that's pretty jacked up. Of violence and poverty, of greed... Of division and animosity? Of insecurity and fear? With Eve, God says, not just the consequence of pain or toil and childbearing, not just the grief or the pain of, of trying to bring forth children, but... This phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. A a phrase that has actually been misused and abused throughout church history and actually used as an excuse for terrible behavior. But realize this isn't an instruction on how to live well. This is a rebuke and a consequence of, of deciding not to live well. And so, what is it saying? That word there, Your desires, actually the same word, is used three different times throughout the Bible, and every time it is a grasping for, an appetite for, a craving after. Your craving will be after your husband. This brokenness, this gap. And man and woman were just the first two humans. It's a craving after relationship, a craving after uh, to be known, to be loved. And he shall rule over you. Now, remember, Genesis 1 and 2 talk a whole lot about ruling, don't they? And they use this word, dominion, stewarding, meant by a man and woman together with God to steward, to have dominion, to rule over this earth from a posture of serving is the position. And so, Actually, it's a different word here. This is the first time this particular word gets used in the Bible. And that word for rule here is not about serving. It's not about cultivating potential. It's not about caring for. That word is about overpowering, domineering. Into this intimate relationship, unhealthy power dynamics are introduced. Division and manipulation. In this, we also see the two greatest failures that I see in men and in myself. Our tendency, when we feel this insecurity and we feel this shame and we don't know how to make this life work, to do one of two things. It's the silence of Adam or or the overbearing power of Adam. Either I shrink away and withdraw because I don't know what to do, so I hide, emotionally, relationally, or I don't know what to do, I feel out of control, and so I Use my greater strength. I use my louder voice I use my bigger body to prove that I have what it takes because inside. I don't feel like I actually do I Mean we know this right that that bullies are usually the most terrified children That the most critical people are often the most self condemning people that I hate something in myself and when I see and get a glimpse of that in you I hate it even more in you. And if we ended there, this would be a really depressing sermon. <laughs> but there's a reason our church is called grace. Because the amazing thing about God, Genesis 1 and 2, it is easy to see his grace on every, in every verse, isn't it? The amazing thing is that God's grace saturates chapter 3 as well. Where? Well, we talked about one of them last week. Mankind having tried to cover their shame on their own, and we do the same in all a million different ways of trying to cover, trying to make our life look okay on the outside when we're dying on the inside. God ignores those fig leaves of Adam and Eve, and instead it says that he takes an animal in its skin, sheds the blood of an innocent animal to cover the shame of mankind. The second place that we see grace, yes, in the, the death of an innocent animal to cover the shame of man. But it's also here when God gives a limit to the pain that we can cause ourselves and one another. It says that he cuts them off from the tree of life. Now, that seems like a punishment, doesn't it? But can you imagine an eternal existence of this with no possibility that this can end? God puts a limit on our own pain that we can put in the world. Now, he'll provide a solution later but for now, we see he actually cuts them off because he knows the havoc that this can wreck on the, on all the rest of our lives and the rest of creation if there are no limits. It's actually a really sad phrase there because it says that he, he cast them out of the garden. In other words, they didn't want to go. I mean, can you imagine the realization when all of a sudden they look at themselves and realize how vulnerable they are and look at God and realize how far away they've gotten I mean, begging. I can't imagine the reaction to God in that moment. But God casts them out of the garden and it says that he places two cherubim there with flaming swords guarding access to the tree of life. Those cherubim actually become an important symbol later in the Bible. When, when uh, Moses in Exodus 32 is, is putting together the aspects of the tabernacle, the cherubim show up in two places. One, the cherubim are on the mercy seat where the sacrifices are going to be offered for the sin of mankind. The other place that the cherubim are uh, is woven into the fabric of the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place behind which the presence of God dwelled. To go into the presence of God was to invite certain immediate death because we could not be with God in our current state and not die. Now that becomes real interesting later because the third place that we see grace is that God there's a phrase that he uses when he talks to the serpent cursed are you you will be on your face for the rest of life and there will be in between you between the woman and her offspring and between you but one day look at what it says one day There will be a man born of a woman, and you will strike his heel. In other words, you will give him a wound that looks like a death wound, but he, in the word there is actually, will crush your head. That he will destroy you, serpent, one day, this man born of a woman to come one day. And in the process, you'll wound him, but he'll destroy you. Now we know later, Jesus The serpent crusher shows up. And the tree of life becomes a cross, and it's his blood that is shed like that first animal to cover the shame of mankind. And as Jesus is hanging there on that cross, on that tree, he cries out, It is finished. His last words from the cross What is finished? The toil and the fear, the shame, the guilt of mankind because of their separation from God. The sacrifices offered generation after generation for thousands of years, desperately trying to to atone for, to, to make a payment for the sin, the separation of mankind. All of our attempts to reconnect to the God that made us, that God himself had to show up in the person of Christ. It had to be his blood, the perfect blood of that sacrificed lamb that would be shed one and for all. And as he cried out, it is finished. It says that the curtain in the temple, the cherubim that separated the most holy place, that curtain was torn in two, from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. In other words, that with the death of Christ, with the blood that was shed, the covering of the sin and the shame of mankind, that crushed the head of the serpent, we can now be reconnected to the God who made us. The thing is, he never turned. He never changed. It was our sin, our failure that kept us away, turned, against, turned away from him and turned against one another. And in the turning to God, as John 1 said, that he showed up. And the ones he came to, they didn't recognize him. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. But the ones who did, the ones who received him, that he gave the right to become children of God. As Romans says... For those who confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. Restored back into the relationship with the God that made us. And it's in this space that we find identity. Who you were made to be. Restored into relationship. First and foremost with God. But then out of this space, learning to be back in relationship with one another responsibility. We have a role to play. I just described it with SDP, right? We need Jesus following lawyers and doctors and teachers and nurses, plumbers and politicians. Living in healthy rhythm with the God who made us. When we talk about the good news of the gospel, it is not just simply that you're forgiven of your sins for heaven one day. It is about the restoration of everything God intended for us from the beginning. The announcement of the kingdom of God. And that is good news. It is eternal life. Not just one day. It is an eternal way of living from this point forward. And yes, we still live in a world that is defined by the brokenness of sin. And yes, we are still wrestling through the effects of our own shame and guilt and fear and hiding. And yes, we are tempted to blame when our own shame is too much for us to bear. And yes, that we tend to turn away and chase after shiny objects. But this restoration of relationship with the God who made us, a choice and a voice. Because the question, the the statement stood throughout all of eternity, I love you. And the question still stands. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? I mean, that's what this is all about. We all have a choice. And then Jesus says this crazy thing in John chapter 14. He's talking to them right before he's about to go to the cross. And he says, it's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, I'll ask the Father, and the Father will give you the Spirit, the Counselor. He will teach you all things, remind you of everything that I taught. In other words, the voice, to have access again to the creator of the universe, not just in random mountaintop moments, but on Tuesday morning on the way to work, when we're sitting across from the dinner table and don't know what to say to our wife, when we watch our teenager drive away, when our boss says, hey, I need to see you for a few minutes in my office. Okay, God, what do you want me to know? The voice of god by his holy spirit the counselor to teach and remind to correct and to guide the very thing the voice of god was intended for in the garden in the first place now real quickly how do we recognize the voice of god in all of the noise and the chaos and the shiny objects of this world well there's a couple of things one God gives us his spirit and God gives us his scripture. And God will never contradict himself. I've met with a few different people recently that have struggled with this idea of of being able to hear from God and and not having these audible voice moments or these clear, and even I hesitate sometimes in my own sharing of my story of the ways that God has has spoken or guided me or, or shown up in my life because I'm not special. It's just the way that God shows up for me. And the way that God shows up for you is going to look different than the way God shows up for me. In Acts, when the Spirit is poured out, it shows up in a hundred different languages. Why? Because we all speak in different ways. So for some people, it's nudges and bumps and prompts. For some people, it is words that come into their head out of nowhere. For some people, it feels like an audible voice. For some people, it is in uh, in prompts. All kinds of different ways that God shows up. The key is is that we're beginning to learn to recognize the voice of our Father that lines up with Scripture every time. That's the first way. And then the more that we learn to recognize it, just like when on old school telephones before there's caller ID, you can recognize a voice more quickly the more often you listen to that voice and named it for what it was. And so that nudge that tells you, hey, you should call that friend you haven't thought of in 10 years. Hey, you should buy that person's lunch in line behind you. Hey, you should go apologize to your coworker. Hey, you should go ask your daughter about that guy. Whatever it might be. And you go and do it. It shows up and God actually, there's something happens. You go, oh, that thing, that nudge, that bump, that prompt, that impression, that feeling, that sense. I don't know what it is for you. But we become a little bit more adept at recognizing. But it lines up with the word of God. It's always interesting when I'm sitting with, with a couple or with a person and they tell me, I feel like God's telling me X, Y, and Z, and it is totally contrary to the things that he says in the scripture. And immediately, I can tell you that that's not God. I don't know what that is. Your desire, your appetite, a friend, the world, but that, that wasn't God because it always will line up with his, his Written word ultimately that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The second is this is by looking at the fruit that it produces in your life. What does the voice of the serpent produce? Fear, shame, guilt, hiding. That voice that we hear you're nothing. That prompt, go talk to your neighbor, and that voice that immediately comes in and goes, I couldn't do that. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know what to say. I'm an idiot. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to make it worse. Hide. You're worthless. But what does the voice of the Father produce? What's the fruit of that voice? Hope. Peace. Peace. It moves us towards love. As, in other words, sacrificial choice, not necessarily desire or affection. Patience. It empowers. It heals. It sets free. Grace, forgiveness. And we know the fruit of this voice. And so those prompts, nudges, the the verse that gets highlighted, whatever it might be, what is the fruit it's producing in your soul? Is it moving you towards love? Is it creating division, or is it it moving you towards reconciliation? Is it producing bitterness, or is it moving you towards forgiveness and grace? Is it causing you to hate, or is it causing you to love in a sacrificial way? What fruit is it producing in your life? It lines up with Scripture, you look at the fruits, and then the third is simply this, it's affirmed by the community of other believers that have the Holy Spirit in them and in that order. So we learn to recognize the voice of God as we make this choice to turn back to the God who knows us, who loves us, who made us. And so even this morning, I know this is a pretty foundational elementary teaching. It's the most important. Everything else from this and so we're going to enter into worship together we're going to create space for communion this this symbolic act that jesus initiated at that same last supper where he promised his holy spirit as a reminder that it's his sacrifice his blood that would be shed that brings us into a new covenant relationship restored to our father So that we can begin again to discover relationship, communion with one another. That's the church. The whole bunch of clumsy, struggling, imperfect people who keep making the choice to receive the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus offered on the cross the spirit that he promises and empowers to try to figure out best how do we live this kind of life together. And so I'm going to invite you to respond, to choose. We have up here at the altar, call it an altar, our kneeling benches and just to come and kneel one thing that was pretty cool that I didn't even realize until we were almost done with the restoration of this building we kept asking like should we have a cross like should we get a cross somewhere we always had the big old cross that's now in the prayer garden outside of the mill we have the the hand carved cross from a friend's giant oak tree in the back of the room but it was like do we need a giant cross and then we're standing in the back of the room and a friend goes uh you got one actually. So I'm going to invite you to come to the cross. And I don't know what God is prompting or leading you to release or to give to him. The places that you need to receive his forgiveness and grace. The place that we recognize our own shame and our own guilt, our own failures, our own demand, demanding turning away from God. The places we've set ourselves or tried to set ourselves on the throne of our lives. And so I'm going to ask first in worship just to come and this question of will you trust me, God's prompting you to surrender to him as the Lord, as Savior and King. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. And I invite you to kneel at the foot of the cross and receive the grace and the forgiveness that comes in Christ. And then from that place, Of healing and freedom. I invite you to take communion that you'll see on the sides of the room there to receive the elements that symbolize this reconnection, the restoration of relationship with God our Father. What is God inviting you into this morning? I love you, he says. Will you trust me? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that even in this chapter that is the greatest failure in the Bible, your grace comes through. That you meet them with what they need in the moment, and then you also promise what you are going to do for the future. And in the same way, in Whatever chapter of life we find ourselves in right now, that you're extending the grace to meet us with what we need right now in this moment, but also the promise of the future that one day, once and for all, Jesus Christ, you will be declared Lord and King. The serpent will be defeated, death will be no more. no more sin or pain, toil or bloodshed. So we long for that day when you return and make all things right. But until then, God, we ask that you would be making all things right, beginning with us. And it's in your precious and powerful name that we